Howdy, stranger. There it is. It's only been, what, 20, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 it's minutes? Been, it's yeah. been two weeks, Kara. What are you talking about? But no, that actually was happening was we did another, like, huge push for interviews for, like, two weeks. So you and I were chatting, like, every day. And then we've had two weeks of, like, maybe it was only one week of silence, but it felt like we hadn't talked for months. I know, right? <laughs> It was weird. It is weird. I agree. It's, it's more comfortable this way. Chatting more regularly? Yeah, it's like touchstone. Touchstone. I keep you grounded. Yes. What is a a touchstone? I guess it's a touchstone that you touch to feel reduce anxiety. I feel, I mean, it reminds me of uh, Inception, where they all had that thing that they knew, like it felt a certain way or whatnot to know what reality they were in or whatever. I don't know. I love Christopher Nolan movies. Great movie. He is very good. Very good. My favorite is Memento. Have you seen that one? I have seen it, but it's been so, 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 so long that uh, honestly, I I couldn't tell you what it was about. The guy has no short-term, no long-term memory. He only has short-term memory. So he tattoos himself messages to remember every day what he's doing. It's awesome. Anyway, who do we have on the show today? Jennifer Cullen, who is a doctoral student of Andrea Wiley at Indiana University. So Jennifer (laughs) Collins studies uh, biological normalcy, social stigma, and fat bias right now in in Indiana. That's that's what her research is on. And I don't have the article printed out, but she was also one of the co-authors with Andrea Wiley, who was a previous guest on two episodes of the pod. She talked about this article, and one of our episodes is part of a talk she gave about what do anthropologists mean when they use the term biocultural. So she's, mm. she's pretty involved in that as well. I stood at her poster geeking out because her work takes place in the community that I partly grew up in. So mm-hmm. I'm from Indianapolis, and my family is from mid-southern Indiana. Monroe County is one of the counties that she focused on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's bring her on. Hi, Jennifer. Hello, how's it going? Good, how are you? <laughs> that was <laughs> good. <laughs> what do we giggling Sorry, about, Kara? I'm not in a giggly mood. I'm in a giggly mood. It's how it's going to be today. Right. Like Kara, it. Jennifer, do you know each other? You are so familiar. Yeah, we, you know, at the HBAs, you know how they have the grad student event where they have the different tables with right. the topics. That's I right, you were there. I was one of the table leaders. I have no idea how the feedback went this year. Were you at my table this year where it was very obvious that there was a competition going on amongst the tables? (laughs) I was there, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last year, the previous year, uh, the table I was at was the most highly rated table at that event. And then someone decided to challenge me, like, you're going down, like... What? All right. <laughs> okay. Wait, so what was your topic last year then? The exact same topic, actually. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, yeah. It's a good topic. It is a good topic. So we'll see. Who knows? Jennifer's um, been a mainstay at HBA for at least two years. Probably, I think I've seen you in the last three. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've been going. I mean, Andrea's like, you got to go to all of them. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. I should do that. <laughs> good on Andrea. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I've been to all of them since I started here at IU, and that's been, this was my fifth year. So, yeah, but I've been presenting only at the last three, so. I didn't present at HBAs until my final year of grad school because no one told me they existed. 
<laughs> until my final year of grad school. Well, I mean, Andrea was the president when I was starting with her, so I kind of like had to know Didn't what to do. It. But yeah, uh, I mean, I'm just doing posters, but that's been fun. No, nothing. It's a good thing. So tell us how you got to be Andrea's student. What's your origin story? How'd you get interested in anthropology and decide to pursue a PhD at IU? Okay, well, I've had kind of a roundabout way of uh, getting here to IU and getting to this particular PhD program. But first, I mean, just growing up, I've always had a fascination with people. Um, and I've just been always interested in people's stories. And so things like, um, maybe it sounds a little bit morbid. I don't know. I've always been fascinated with things like cemeteries. So even as like a little kid, people would think I was weird because I would be like, oh my gosh, look at that old cemetery. I want to stop and look, mom. And my mom also had a fascination with it. So I probably got some of that from her. But really, I just wanted to go like, look at the, who are these people, right? Like what were their life stories, you know? And some of the older cemeteries will have like, causes of death and stuff like that. And that, I was just fascinated with that. I was also super interested in archaeology. So I did a lot of road trips as a kid. I'm from Southern California. Um, and we would drive to Texas all the time to go visit my grandparents. And so I saw all of the archaeological sites in the American Southwest. Um, so that got me super interested in archaeology. And I've always been a true crime fanatic, even as a kid. Unsolved mysteries and forensic files, like those things were my jam. You know, I would be like scared, like a little like 12 year old, like underneath my sheets, like. <laughs> so I've always been interested in that kind of stuff. So going into my undergrad, I knew I was interested in anthropology. Like I had an interest in archaeology and I had an interest in, in forensic anthropology as well. And so I entered uh, my undergrad at Cal State Fullerton. I don't know if you guys have heard of that place. Sure. Most people haven't unless they like baseball. They have a really good baseball team. So I pursued my undergrad there and my intro to biological anthropology course is what really got me more interested and focused on human biology. Who'd you work with there? Well, in my undergrad, nobody. So I didn't know what I was doing. I was a first-generation college student. Uh, so I was just like, yeah, I'm going to college. Like, duh, we all have to go to college now, right? Uh, and so I went in and, you know, I commuted 70 miles to school. And so I, work, I, I went to school two days a week, worked the other five days a week. Um, so I didn't really grow any relationships with anybody there in my undergrad. And so I also got a lot of questions from people, like family or like my mom's friends or family friends, like, well, what are you even going to do with that degree? You know, my 18, 19, 20-year-old me was just like, oh, you know, good question. I don't know. I'll figure it out. And then it became my last year. And I was just Very like, yeah, stones. that was a really, really good question. Uh, what am I going to do with that? And I didn't know, like, what grad school was all about. But I did hear one of my fellow classmates talking to the, one of the professors I had about applying to the master's program there. And so that's what got me thinking like, oh, maybe this is something I want to do too. And so I applied and then I got in and Sarah Johnson was my advisor. She's awesome. So she's a behavioral ecologist there in the anthropology uh, program. And she focuses, right now she does a lot of stuff with anthropology of food and nutrition and community-based research, kids in Orange County. But yeah, so she was an awesome mentor. She had me jump in on a research project like in my first week starting my master's program. And so my thesis, I worked with her for my thesis for my master's and it was on food habits so the maintenance and exchange of food habits across generations and so that got me thinking I would be like okay kind of interested in food choice and then she was the one who kind of talked me into going in to pursue a PhD um, and so she was just like you know this Robin Nelson over at UC Riverside she, she would be a good fit for you Andrea Wiley at Indiana University would be a really good fit for you and so I applied to both of those places 
Um, UC Riverside was closer to home, so that's actually where I was at first. So I was with Robin Nelson there for a little bit. So I worked with her there for about a year, and then she got this awesome job opportunity. And so she parted ways, and when she did, I did as well. And Robin, she's obviously amazing. Everybody knows that, right? So it was awesome working with her. But she was the only human biologist at UC Riverside. So, I mean, everyone's great. The department's great. The people are great there. But I just would have really had to change everything that I wanted to do if I stayed there. So that's when, how I ended up here at IU. So I transferred over here in 2014. Worked with Andrea Wiley, who is also really amazing and just a wonderful mentor. We are um, fans. And that's kind of leads us into our first, I guess, researchy anthro question in that you are on the article with Andrea Wiley called, What Do Anthropologists Mean When They Use the Term Biocultural? And uh, kind of two questions. What part of that did you do? And then what was your big takeaway from it? Okay. Well, I think that paper was something that I think Andrea wanted to do for quite a while. And then she had me as her research assistant for a year. And so she was like, hey, let's do this. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And so we jumped in. And so my part in it was, well, first generating the data set, right? Mm -hmm. So I went through all of the publications in 25 different anthropology journals in the first 15 years of the 21st century, so 2000 to 2014, and I looked for every single article that used the term biocultural in it. Mm. So, um, yeah, and then I and I used that to generate the data set that we used for the article, um, and then it came. So we that's what I did for the first semester, and then the second semester we actually wrote the paper. And so I wrote a, I wrote the methods and results, and she wrote uh, the intro and conclusion and all that stuff, and then we we wrote it all together mm. and edited it all together and stuff. So. That's kind of my part in that paper. And then, yeah, so, I mean, takeaways from that. I mean, really, we just wanted a description, right, of what does biocultural work look like in anthropology? Because there was a lot of talk in the, in the 1990s about what should a biocultural research agenda be? What should it look like? Right, it was very prescriptive, right? And we didn't want to be prescriptive. We just wanted to be descriptive. See, okay, now that, like, we had all of these guidelines back then, what does it actually look like now? Is there any sort of consensus about what it means or, or what biocultural work is? And so we found that there actually is no consensus within, uh, at least within the papers that we went through. And that, I mean, that's not a bad thing, right? So we see that there's not a consensus about the criteria that defines biocultural work. And there's actually a really wide variation um, in its use. We did find that there, it is, in, in a lot of the articles, and in, in a large majority of them, it's topically aligned with health. Um, so health has a big role in biocultural work. And we also found that in these articles, the majority of the time, the, the relationship between biology and culture was understood kind of in a unidirectional way, where it was really looking at how does culture impact biology in some way. And this was... Again, biocultural was used in a lot of different ways. So how, how do many different things in culture affect many different things in biology? We didn't see anybody only looking at how biology impacts culture. You know, this is probably trying to distance ourselves from sociobiology and biological determinism that's associated with that work. And then we saw a small proportion of these articles actually looking at the bi-directional relationship between the two. So those were kind of the big things that we found. And, and so we were just kind of interested in, okay, well, why don't we look at bi-directional relationships between biology and culture? Why is it only just this looking at how culture impacts biology in a lot of these, in a lot of this work? I mean, it's important work, right? Um, social epidemiology does it really well, and a lot of anthropology does it well. And the way that we kind of differentiate ourselves from social epidemiology is by, you know, using ethnographic methods, using evolutionary theory, 
What did you take away from the experience of coming right into your program and getting to work on a paper like this that ends up in American Anthropologist? I'm kind of interested in that. What did I take away from it? Well, um, I felt very lucky. It also, you know, I read, I got to read a lot of articles that were related to stuff that I was interested in. Uh, so I, I read hundreds of articles. I went through thousands of articles, you know, so I got an, a good idea of, you know, what was going on in the 21st century in terms of biocultural anthropology, which was really cool. It helped me with my qualifying reading list for my qualifying exams, which was cool. And yeah, I mean, being able to actually jump in on this research and write a paper um, so early on was amazing. Like I just felt incredibly lucky. And then presenting it at the AAAs in 2016 was also really cool as well. And it seems to have set you up for a lot of what you're doing. So this episode should come out right before the workshop you and Andrea put together with the School for Advanced Research called Biological Normalcy, Investigating Relationships Between Statistical Norms and the Normative. So can you tell us about this conceptual framework you're using of biological normalcy and what your objectives are for that workshop. Yeah, this came right out of kind of us trying to um, understand how can we better understand the bi-directional relationship between biology and culture. So biological normalcy and ethnobiocentrism is something that Andrea has been writing about since, you know, 2004. And, you know, that's something that came back up when we were trying to think about how can we better understand the bi-directional relationship between biology and culture in biocultural research. So it kind of led us to wanting to develop this concept into a conceptual framework for research that has a focus on human biological variation. And so, I mean, at its core, right, it's trying to discern between two different definitions of normal. The first being the statistical average of some sort of feature or characteristic within a particular population, right? So statistical norms, what, what do you actually see around you? What are you mm -hmm. observing? And then the second definition that we might have for normal would be uh, normative beliefs or ideas around what it means to be normal. What should a normal or healthy body look like or what should a normal or healthy body be? So this framework tries to understand within a particular population, you know, what are the, what are the statistical norms and then what are the normative beliefs? Um, and then what is the relationship between these two things, right? Mm. Does one impact the other or do they both impact each other? Because, you know, you know, social norms can be informed by statistical biological norms just as much as uh, they can in turn influence the distribution of biological traits as well. And so that's kind of at the core of it. And it also is trying to get at the ways that ethnobiocentric views exist in understanding biological variation. You know, how are cultural biases informing understandings of biology? and its variation within a particular population. First, I guess, for the workshop, we're going to have several different particip participants coming in, and they're each going to focus on a different topic um, as a case study um, for biological normalcy, right? So some of these topics would be diet, body proportions, parenting, skin color, ovarian function, hygiene, sex and gender, sleep, microbiome, all these, all this fun wow. stuff, right? The workshop will be three days. Each day will have its own objective. First is really trying to disentangle these two meanings of normal and trying to understand what these relationships are between the two. The second day is going to be more focused on trying to understand social causes and consequences. So we'll try to answer for each topic. We'll be trying to um, answer things like what kind of factors drive social change in our definitions of normal? Um, how do social networks uh, work to create, maintain, or disrupt biological normalcy? How is what we consider normal shaped by public policies as well? So we'll be trying to answer questions like that on the second day. 
And then the last day is just trying to understand there are different language that we can use that would help biological variation be described in non-ethnobiocentric ways. And also trying to look at, okay, what are new ways forward? Um, what are some new areas of scholarship or research that could be fruitful for future endeavors? You mentioned there's going to be a focus on dissemination plans. So I, I cherry-picked a, a quote out of it. You said something to the effect of ensuring academic, applied, and public outreach with regard to the dissemination plan. So what do you mean by that? What do you see as the importance in, in that sort of tripartite approach? I mean, we want to maximize the impact of the workshop. And so it's clearly important to get it out in terms of in academia, right? And within anthropology, we're trying to develop it into a conceptual framework for research, you know, something that's accessible that people can use for, for research. So clearly we want to get it out into academic circles for sure. But it also, you know, biological normalcy also has direct relevance to public health and the practice of medicine. So I think it's important to also reach out to them um, and, and those fields as well. And then the, the other thing, like public engagement is important as well. Trying to, to get our word out um, just to the public and, and doing public outreach is important because ideas about what is normal um, have a real impact on day-to-day -day lives. So spreading the word in terms of public outreach is really, is really important as well. We have some things that we'll be doing in terms of education outreach and stuff like that, or high schools or different age ranges and things that are more accessible online for everybody. So that's part of the workshop or that's something you're developing? I guess that's what I was, I was not clear on how this workshop, and I traditionally think of workshops as being sort of insular, the SAR workshops as being insular within, among academics, but you have plans for, for sharing that? Part of the workshop, so in the third day, another, I mean, another one of the goals on the third day is everybody needs to come up with some sort of, how can we disseminate this in these, in these three different realms? So that's part of like the new ways forward uh, in, in the third day of the workshop. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, that's cool. I like that. So let's talk about your HBA presentation that I, I stood and, and picked your brain about. So you compared in that presentation, this is part of your dissertation research, um, yeah. I believe, mm -hmm. one of the chapters. And you compared fat bias among adolescents with regard or bi obesity prevalence in two Indiana counties, um, Lawrence and Monroe County, and caveat, I already mentioned this, but I'll say it again. I'm from Indiana. I have lots of family in those areas. So, so this is a joke, family, who are listening. Tell me how my family fared in your study. How did you conduct this? And, and how'd, you, how'd you do this research? Getting back to biological normalcy, right? I'm interested in understanding how statistical norms might influence normative beliefs, right? So this, this project was kind of just trying to understand one of the relationships between these two versions of normal. And so the idea was to know how cultural understandings about what constitutes normal or healthy body relate to obesity prevalence within the population. So I looked at a map of Indiana and it was colored by prevalence of obesity. So I found the county with the highest prevalence of obesity in the state and the county with the lowest prevalence of obesity in the state. And they actually happened to be right next to each other. So they actually border each other. The two field sites I went to for this were literally a 30 minute drive apart. And so, so I measured two different forms of fat bias. So I measured explicit fat bias and then also implicit fat bias. So explicit fat bias are, um, you know, biased attitudes towards fat individuals that people are consciously disclose. They're either willing to consciously disclose it or they're able to consciously disclose it. And I measured this using the attitudes towards obese people scale. And so this is just a standard 20 item survey. And, you know, they basically just say whether they agree or disagree with different statements. That was the explicit fat bias. I also measured implicit fat bias. So implicit fat bias is bias that um, 
is more internalized, right? So this is the bias that people may be unwilling or unable to, to report. And so maybe they don't even know that they, are, they, they have internalized this fat bias. And so to measure this, I use the IAT or the Attitude Implicit Association Test. For this test, they have to make cognitive connections between the terms and phrases fat people, thin people, good and bad. Um, and so this gives you an idea of whether they have actually internalized this fat bias or not, whether they want to disclose it or not. Um, and so those are the two fat biases I measured. I found these methods from Alex Bruce and Amber Wittich's paper in mm. 2012. So that was, that was a great paper. And, you know, looking at two different countries and how these two different forms of, of fat bias are different. So I wanted to see, you know, how do these two forms of fat bias vary between two populations that live actually really close to each other, but vary by obesity prevalence. So the first one for explicit fat bias, I found that these two populations were identical identical. They were exactly the same. So they both expressed relatively positive attitudes towards obese people. Not super, super positive, but relatively positive. And it was in line with other U.S. populations in, in terms of undergrad populations and stuff. So it wasn't surprising. So they were identical. The other thing that I found, so when I, I, I measured implicit fat bias, I found that they were not identical. So what? So the, both of them are saying like, oh, we're, fa we're, we're, we're fat positive, right? Um, but then I found both of them, both of the populations actually internalized quite a bit of anti-fat bias, mm. right? And they did so at varying degrees. So both of them actually internalized anti-fat bias, but in the population with the lower prevalence of obesity, the anti-fat bias was even higher. Mm. Where the, the statistical norm was, was to be smaller, the anti-fat bias was higher. Okay. Um, um, so what do you take away from that? Well, I think that's really interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> difference, right? Because these, these two populations are very close to each other. When I was first doing, thinking about how I was going to do this research, I was only going to measure explicit fat bias, and I'm so glad I didn't, because I would have been like, oh, they're exactly the same. There's no interesting differences. So I'm really glad that I also measured um, implicit fat bias and actually saw this variation, because I think it's interesting that what people are saying is not the same as what they're feeling. They kind of set up the next stages of my research, right? So I'm interested in understanding then if anti-fat bias attitudes are different in these two populations, then are there differences in experiences with weight teasing and, and fat shaming and fat stigma? And does that impact health in a negative way? Does that play out differently in these two epidemiological contexts? So when I look at Lawrence County and Monroe County, these two different populations, the obesity rate varies by about 16%. But the education level between the two, like, that is a massive difference between the two. And so I, I, part of me is also curious with, with looking at future work, assessing what are the popular beliefs of the causes of obesity. Yeah. Oh, uh, for and sure. The treatments for obesity. Because, like, those numbers are staggeringly different. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that the education levels are so different, right? Because Monroe County it includes Bloomington, which is IU. This is a huge college town. Bloomington is the biggest city in, in Monroe County. Second biggest city is Ellettsville, which has like 1,200 people in it. Third largest city? I don't remember what it's called, but it has 200 people in it. So... <laughs> You know, Monroe County is Bloomington, basically. Yeah. So, and this is a college town. So it's not surprising. It's not mm -hmm. surprising, number one, that this is the lowest obesity prevalence because it's also probably the youngest because it's a lot of undergrad. Half of our population here are undergrad kids. Yeah, your median age is also like yeah. so skewed between the two counties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, half of our population here is, you know, between the ages of 18 and 22. 
So mm -hmm. it's not surprising that the obesity prevalence is lower, which is why I didn't, when I went out to measure implicit and explicit fat bias, I didn't want to measure, I, I didn't measure it in adults. I was more interested in high school kids and, mm. and people who had potentially grown up in these areas because I'm really interested in understanding like, okay, so what's the average body that you see around you? Mm. So, I mean, if they're all undergrads and they're all small, I mean, um, but those are things that I hope to disentangle a little bit more uh, moving forward yeah. um, with, with my dissertation research for sure. This sort of transitions nicely to the short report you recently submitted to AJHP. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but what I read is that you're seeing in areas where there's a higher rate of, according to CDC and WHO standards, people who qualify as overweight or obese are are self-rating themselves as about right. So there's there seems to be a transition in phenotypes people are saying they're okay with. And I, I won, I wonder, this seems like it maps on your data. It also suggests there might be a danger in becoming okay with negative phenotypes. But on the other hand, we have problems with those categories because mm -hmm. those categories don't distinguish between body fat and muscle mass and good fat, healthy fat, and unhealthy fat. So can you unpack a little bit of that or speak to that or? Yeah, sure. So this actually came out of needing something to present at the HBAs a couple of years ago. I'm interested in what's, what's considered normal around, you know, weight in the U.S. So I was reading around and I found a bunch of papers talking about this transition over time. So they were looking, they were using NHANES data, a bunch of different papers were talking about this, right? So they were using NHANES data to look at how the categories of BMI have changed over time. And then they're also looking at how people are self-rating themselves. So perceived weight status. They have to answer a question that says, how do you perceive your current weight? And they have to say either underweight, about right, or overweight. Those are their three options that they could give. And so these papers were finding that since the 1980s up until now, there are more and more people in the overweight and obese categories that are self-rating themselves as about right. And so these papers had a lot of things to say about this. Some of them were arguing this is really bad because now overweight and obese people are way less likely to engage in weight loss efforts. So they're just gonna not even try. And then there were other people arguing actually this could have positive consequences because, you know, being satisfied with your own weight is associated with more positive health behaviors and better or increased life satisfaction, right? So there are these two different sides um, arguing back and forth, but none of them actually ever measured health outcomes, which was interesting because this is in Haynes data and, and they have those data. So these were the two sides of the story and reading these kind of is what prompted me. And I, I wrote this paper with Kurt White. He's an epidemiologist and a statistician. So that's kind of what prompted us to want to write this paper in the first place. So we were like, okay, people are having these arguments. Okay, so what is it? We decided to use uh, the Framingham risk score as an outcome variable, right? So this is a measure of cardiovascular disease risk. And the reason why we used that is because I found a paper that talked about recent global calculations estimating that nearly 70% of deaths that were associated with overweight and obesity uh, resulted from some sort of cardiovascular event or cardiovascular disease. So, okay, we used the Framingham risk, risk score and we wanted to see, you know, are these 
is this associated with weight perception? We did that. We wrote the paper and we did this, ran the stats on it. You know, unsurprisingly, we found that cardiovascular disease risk increased as body fat percentage increased. We controlled for body fat percentage in our model instead of BMI because there are I mean, it, does, it doesn't cover everything, but it's a little bit better than just using BMI. You know, what we found was that perceiving oneself to be about right seems to have a protective effect compared to people who perceive themselves as being overweight, and that regardless of what your body fat percentage was. I don't know if this answers like who was right or who was wrong in, you know, the earlier papers that I read, but seems that it could mean that people might be um, stigmatized a little bit less in certain populations. Maybe if it's normal to be, if it's the statistical norm to have more weight, maybe you feel more normal and you might feel stigmatized less. I don't know. So that's what I'm hoping to um, unpack and uncover a little bit more in my next phases of my dissertation research. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a straw man question. I mean, we, in talking to Alex Brewis last year and reading her work, we know that internalized stigma leads to many more negative health consequences than are related directly to being overweight or obese. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like a positive thing, I, in, my, in my opinion. Yeah, this is a really cool work that I, I think is going to be fascinating for multiple comparisons, even across the United States. You know, you have Midwest Indiana, but what does the South look like? What does the Upper Northwest Coast look like? I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things. And I don't think there's going to be one pattern. Anyone who tells you that there's one pattern <laughs> is trying to sell you something. I absolutely um, agree. Always forget about human variation because that is like essential in all things. Uh, anyway. Uh, we like to wrap up our interviews with the fun question. So you are a graduate student. How much longer do you have left, do you think, in the program, roughly? We will see. It's one to two years. One to two years. Okay, so there's some time. There's some time. Uh, so what do you do to maintain balance and sanity? What are you reading, watching, listening to, hobbies? I love being outside. So I'm from Southern California. You know, it's no, no surprise I love being outside. So if I can do anything outside... Anything by water outside, that's amazing. That's my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really good hiking around here. So I do that. There's no mountains, so it's not necessarily tough hiking. But, you know, there's a lot of pretty green space for at least six months of the year. You know, but sometimes, I, a lot of times, I just take myself for a walk, listen to a podcast or an audiobook, um, and just take myself for a walk. I don't have a dog to walk, so I just got to walk myself. A lot of times, you got to stay inside here. And so I'm such a nerd for board games. I love cooperative board games. Um, cooperative ones. So like Pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Pandemic okay. is great. I don't know if you guys, well, I don't, Mansions of Madness. I don't know if either of you have heard of this or any of the no. listeners have heard of this game. It is amazing. It's so much fun. It's like based on like the Eldritch Horror series and you work together to fight against the board and there's ghosts and all this cool stuff. And so that's a really fun one. This is going to make me sound really nerdy too, but recently my friends and I have taken up puzzling. Ooh. So like, we'll just get together and share a bottle of wine and just put a puzzle together for hours. You um, never so. need to justify your hobbies. <laughs> yeah. So it's what you enjoy is what you enjoy. <laughs> it's good to have those things. It's a long slog in academia. If that's your, what's your goal? Are you want to, are you staying in academia? What's your plan? After? That would be amazing. I would love that. Yeah. So um, I'll be applying to academic positions once I'm at that stage, so postdocs, whatever kind of positions I can find. That's great. Hear that, people? So for <laughs> those people, if they want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? 
Well, great question. I actually just barely started a Twitter. <gasps> right? So I'm, I don't, I haven't tweeted nothing yet. All right, let's uh, find so you. Very brand new up right now. <laughs> but so my Twitter handle is at uh, Jennifer M. Cullen. So very boring, just my name. So Jennifer, the letter M, and then C-U-L-L-I-N. Anything else you want to promote? I can promote something that you don't even know about yet. So in the end of November, you will be part of a AAA session called Biological Normalcy, Investigating Relationships Between Statistical Norms and Normative Use that is being co-sponsored by the Biological Anthropology Section and the Central States Anthropological Society. Spoilers! I just nailed that down like 15 minutes ago. Awesome. <laughs> My goodness. Jennifer, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. We have been the Sausage of Science. I am Kara, and you can find me on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And I'm Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. And like us, share us, do all the things that you can that are safe to do at work. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks again, Jennifer. Bye. Bye, Jennifer. Thank you.